We all expect to get old, and yet we are inevitably surprised when we reach our sunset years. We begin our lives on the ascent to adulthood, where we linger as long as we can, working, reproducing, dreaming. Then we begin to slide downward into senility, another type of childhood. Dependent, independent, and dependent once again. Since the dawn of writing, scholars, alchemists, and scientists have made attempts to put the brakes on aging and banish that final spectre of death. Drink never made Gil feel any better, and yet it was the first friend he turned to when the stalker of the past closed in on him. No matter how many times it happened, the maybe-it-would-work-this-time frame of mind took over, and he ordered himself a triple vodka and coke. Even greater was the folly when he decided to get a buzz while pitching left and right on a budget cruise liner. Whoever said this would be relaxing deserves to drown, he thought to himself as he sipped his drink. He had left his cabin, fleeing from the oppressive quiet, but now, surrounded by fellow travellers, chatting and milling around the bar, he wished they'd all just shut their mouths. Isn't it awful? What if it happened to us? Drifted the voice of a merry lady sitting nearby. I know, Wilma. I don't know what I'd do in that situation, the woman beside her responded, giving the appropriate overly dramatic tone before taking another sip of overpriced white wine. It didn't take a sage to figure out what they were talking about. It was global news a few months before. Another cruise liner, the sister ship to the one they were all on, was attacked by armed assailants in the middle of the night. The news never quite decided whether to call the unknown attackers pirates or terrorists, but they all agreed that they should be portrayed as real-life James Bond villains, dominating the 24-7 news cycle for five days straight. Such an event seemed close, daunting, about to impose itself again on the here and now. He found it quite quaint, really, in the shortness of a human lifespan, things are horrible up until they're too far in the past to be remembered. The worst thing in the world to someone is just the worst thing in their living memory. Gil didn't have to dig far to come up with things he'd seen personally that would make being gunned down by some jacked-up pirates seem like a nice day out. They should try having been around for the Mongol destruction of Baghdad, the crusade against the Cathars, or being one of the starving, freezing wretches during the Battle of Leningrad. His tongue caressed the last drops of his vodka and coke before he slammed the glass down on the bar and called for another. The bartender crisply poured it out and set it in front of him. Gil wrapped his keen-knuckled fingers around it and scanned his credit card on the receiver. Hey there, I hope you don't mind, a bright voice said. You'd think after so many years, 
he'd be immune to jump scares. But the sudden interruption got his heart rate up, and a little bit of his drink spilled onto the bar. Oh, no, 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 I don't mind, Gil said, not turning around, preparing to ignore the stranger who settled in the stool beside him. He could hear the plastic clicking of her fake nails as she tapped on her phone. He wondered if the bar gave drinks to go so he could return to his cabin for some peace. It's choppy tonight, the stranger commented. Gil repressed a sigh. Some people just couldn't handle being left with their own thoughts. Every waking moment had to be filled with some Indian shatter. I thought it's been a smooth voyage so far, he responded, keeping his tone as wooden as possible in the hope she'd decide him too dull a conversationalist to bother with. I wasn't talking about the boat, she replied, her voice taking on a distinct silkiness. I meant your aura. This was the second time Gil was surprised in the last few minutes. That was bad form, he decided. But such a comment was at least enough for him to turn around and look at the stranger. It turned out she was worth looking at. She was striking in several senses of the word. She had silky black hair which seemed to reflect light in a rich golden red hue. Her dress was the texture of dried black leaves ending in pearly tipped tassels which clicked tastefully when she moved. Her skin was barely detectable olive in tone and her eyes were wide and penetrating. She was like that luxurious chocolate you only got on very rare occasions and then ate it comically slowly because you felt obliged to make it last. Come again, he said, averting his eyes back to his drink. It's like you glow, but not really because you're not really glowing, obviously. He took a gulp from his drink, letting the alcohol sting his throat so he could get his mind off her alluring scent. Isn't that some sort of new-aged hokum? He replied, hoping his dismissiveness would drive her away. Oh no, none of that, she giggled, calling the bartender over and ordering a drink. I just don't have a better word for it. She turned on her stool, her legs crossed towards him. Right, then, what do you see? He asked, keeping the tone of his voice flat and disinterested. Browns. Lots of browns. So my aura's covered in dung? She let out a tinkling laugh and gently grazed his arm with her hand. Everyone gets a little brown with age, but nowhere near as thick as you. It's like you've been around thousands of years or something. Pretty weird, right? Far from sharing in her puzzled delight, Gil was run through with a saw blade of panic. He just about stopped himself from reacting when he noticed the glass had started to shake because he'd been gripping it so tightly. This was very bad form, indeed, he decided. Ah, I must be an old soul, he said, trying to sound casual. He cursed himself internally. She was just using a figure of speech. She couldn't possibly know the truth. Nobody else did. Why would that suddenly change? I like that, she said, her voice smoky dark like old oak. What do I call you? Gil, he responded, 
sounding quite deflated. Yourself? Karina! There's so many dull auras on this ship, nobody worth talking to. I saw yours and I don't know, I was just drawn to you. Sometimes you see the weird thing and you've just got to go for it. You ever get that? No, he answered honestly. The ship seemed to lurch suddenly on the surf. A bit of his drink sloshed out of the glass onto the surface of the bar. He quietly sighed and downed the remainder in one gulp. He was about to make his apologies and disappear back off to the cabin, but when he went to move, the unwanted visitor cut in. I feel like a walk along the deck, don't you? Before he could object, she had stood up beside him and hooked his arm in hers. She wasn't very tall, but something about her made Gil feel small and insignificant, like he was being abducted by a giant hess. In a sluggish brain fog, he let himself be dragged through the ship, chattering with this enigmatic creature, and to his own surprise, he found himself getting into it. They shared a lot of interests, niche ones. She had opinions on gothic architecture and the best way to build a terrarium for your pet lizard or snake. Gil was smiling as they slipped away to an abandoned section of the deck, overlooking the dark waters, highlighted by the reflections of the moon. Fresh drinks in hand, the night devolved into laughter, the sharing of anecdotes, punctuated with warm glances, which implied some sort of wordless, mutual understanding. This was exceptionally per form, he decided. Just before midnight, the couple were quite tipsy, standing underneath the red glow of the outdoor heating lamps. The rest of their fellow voyagers had trickled back inside, probably because the cruise ship's nightclub had started up and people craved the dance floor. Do we stink? She giggled as the last person vanished from view. Smiling gaily, Gil pretended to sniff his armpits. Oh, it must be you, he teased. She laughed and slapped his arm. At that moment, the ship gave a sharp jerk and Karina tumbled down onto Gil's lap. Whoops, she exclaimed dramatically, but seemed to settle into the position very comfortably, very quickly. How about that, she said, her face now mere centimetres from his. He felt like he was being smothered by a heady cloud of otherworldly perfume. The enticing presence of this woman forced its way down his windpipe, sapping all space for the safe passage of air. She had the uncanny ability to make the world feel like it was all her. Maybe that's what she meant about auras. There was a certain flavour to some people's very existence which was hard to hide, even in silence or blindness. The thing which stood out most to Gil was just how alive she was. She was the furthest from death any human could be. Most people were walking corpses. However, she was quick with an intense and forceful vibrancy which seemed to mock the banality all around her. Such reflections were banished into an incoherent, blissful miasma when their lips touched. For the next hour or so, they kissed, and with the aid of his smartphone, danced to obscure 1920s ballroom music, followed by the vibrational thrusts of 1980s techno. At some point, 
the heat and magnetism crackling between them, collapsed into the chaotic beauty of an embrace. All grace and class cast aside for a raw expression of pure hunger. This was abysmal form, he decided. The giggling conjoined blob that was the couple ended up pressed against the wall of the ship's cabin. With a start, they were wrenched apart. The wall had turned out to be an unlocked door. Someone was careless, she remarked, a mischievous sweetness in her voice. Let's have a look. Uh, Maybe we should just, Gil objected, but before he could, she had taken him firmly by the hand and steered him into the half-lit corridor. It was clearly some sort of maintenance access way. The lights were all a throbbing yellow colour, casting strong artificial shadows. The air smelt of oil and salt. If the deck was the ship's made-up face, this was its acidic stomach. This brings me back, she said, a sort of wonder in her voice. What? Gil asked, feeling unnecessarily nervous given the silliness of the situation. He'd seen Genghis Khan snap the spines of his enemies without his stomach churning. Trespassing into a maintenance corridor should hardly be giving him the butterflies. This was shameful form, he decided. Did a few years in the Navy to pay for college, she informed him. I know the inside of a big ship. It seemed like most of the staff were asleep, or the night duty particularly inattentive, which was likely considering the unlocked door. But they didn't encounter anyone as they poked around maintenance cupboards, speculated at the use of certain machines, and generally felt the thrill of the petty rebellion. After taking cover a few times to let a sleepy-looking security guard shuffle past, they arrived in a small, dark space, with a sofa, some tables and a number of magazines. It looked like some sort of break room for the staff. The more interesting thing, however, was the fact that it was a balcony which overlooked the enormous, tens of metres long moving piston of the ship's engine. Its rotation could be more felt than heard. Great gut-shaking vibrations reached out to warn those around that it could crush you into a mulch should you get too close. Whoa, she gasped. What a Beast. Keep your voice down, Gil interjected. There's people down there. No way they can hear us with that so close to them. She went over and closed the door of the balcony and slid the sliding lock into place. What are you doing? He hissed. Getting some privacy. Then she pushed him over to the sofa in the corner and straddled him. Don't want any interruptions. The engine purred like a metal tiger, each rotation rising and falling. It fought the never-ending energy of the ocean with the great and yet temporal and feeble creations of humanity. Great clanks were heard every time a rod went into a socket and out again, over and over, getting faster and then slower. Depending on the strength of the ocean currents the ship was facing, All the while the propeller caressed the water with a forceful intimacy, both at one with and at war against 
the untamed seas. But unlike the never-ending struggle of steel against wave, human beings, like their very lives, were limited in scope, and their activities would come to an end. So with a warm, full comfort, Karina and Gil reclined on the sofa, in the shadows, in the bowels of the ship. You were in the Navy, you said? Gil asked, feeling still at heart. This was truly monstrous form, he decided. Karina lifted her head from his shoulder and looked at him with those sparkling, vivid eyes. Easiest way to get free college, she shrugged. It's common in the States. What did you want to be then? He asked, breathing in her scent like the gods sniffed the aroma of animal sacrifice. A mythologist, she said. She almost seemed a little embarrassed. Huh? I love stories, but unlike the rest of the kids I grew up with, I never stopped. I especially love old stories. You like things like the Iliad? No, no, no. That's way too mainstream. I like to go to places to find stories that nobody's heard before. Trying to find the oldest I can. Do you go into the jungle and talk to tribes or something? Oh no, I'm not that outdoorsy. Most of the time, small towns, especially pubs. That's where you hear things nobody's writing down. That's where I'm headed once the ship hits shore. Talk to some locals. Hear some good stories. Old stories. The oldest. How do you know? How old they are. Some academic stuff I do when I write them down, but I often have a good idea when I first hear them. The tellers' auras look brown when they tell them, because they're thinking of old things. My favourite stories kind of look like you. Gil absent-mindedly traced a finger up her thigh as her words pulled him down into some corner of his mind that he pretended didn't exist. He was old. So very old. He knew many tales that no other living being knew, so many as to be uncountable. But the oldest, the very oldest, if only he could forget. I might know a story you might be interested in. An old one, he said his voice small, distant. An unfamiliar accent pulled at the edges. I doubt it will be that old, but... She reached up and kissed him on the cheek. It was like being grazed by a flower in the wind. Tell me, I know it will be worth it. The village was thriving this season. Good harvest, many children. The chief, Manu, decided that there should be a festival, so he gathered all the people together, along with all that was needed for a feast. In the fire circle outside his hut, the people played and ate and praised the gods. A sacrifice was made and the snake dance was performed. Wives went to their husbands and husbands went to their wives, and they looked over their children with thankfulness, blessed as they were by the High Master. During the festival, Manu stood up and addressed the people. He said, 
the nobility and good deeds of our people have gained the favour of the gods. The High Master Dutter has decided that we should be honoured with one more great blessing, that of eternal memory. No longer shall we live, die, and forget who we were. We shall now live, die, and live again, remembering everything. Only the body shall die, the spirit shall live forever. How is this come to be? the chief's grandson called out. Yemo, my brother, sacrificed himself to the gods in exchange for this bounty. Yemo has cured us of death. How should we get this bounty then? he replied. Follow me to a place the gods have left over, a promised land, and there we shall be granted eternal life. During the rest of the year, the tribe made plans to move. Some, however, felt tied to the land and to neighbouring tribes through marriage, and so decided to stay. After a festival of farewells, Manu led his people into the east, into a secret place hidden by mountains where rivers ran clean and full and crops were beyond plenty. In the centre of the paradise lay the Tower of Dater, where the gods lived. Once settled in the land, one by one, people were taken by the glorious but terrifying messengers of Dater from the village into the Forbidden Tower. There they would stay for many moons before coming back, seemingly unchanged. None would speak of what they saw there, but when they aged and died, they were reborn as infants and lived again, returning to the land of Dater, as they still remembered where it lay. Bodies came and went, but the person persisted. And so the people of Dater grew old and wise, and the gods were very pleased. As time went on, some of the ancient ones tired of the land of Dater and its idyllic ways, and knowing of its existence, shunned it, choosing not to return. Instead used their aged wisdom to rule over the tribes into which they were born, the deathless over those doomed to die. The ancient ones began to disbelieve in the gods, coming to think of themselves as divine. The memories of their longevity long buried are openly ignored. Some even attempted to build their own towers to rival Dater's, so they could give their fellow man eternal memories too, as they were growing tired of their friends and family dying, being reborn with no memory of them, while they lived on memory stubbornly intact. Seeing this, the gods became very displeased, and they summoned Dater to a council to account for what he had done. Dater, being proud, refused to admit that what he did was wrong, for he was greatly infested in his creations. The true lord, Yalde Boath, 
creator of all things, seeing Dater's pride, stripped him of his duties, and ordered that his deathless humans be purged. So Yalde Boath commanded the land of Dater to be flooded and its people drowned. This was so, and as they died, Yalde Boath reached out his hand and caught the souls between his fingers, preventing them from ever returning to a body. Servants of Yalde Boath were then dispatched to eliminate whatever scatterings of the deathless ones remained, and to all the world, the immortals were gone, then forgotten. This genocide was not complete, however, as beyond the sight of the gods, Dater, in his grief, went and stood at the edge of the land he had built. He wept as he beheld that it was now an inland sea. Then he noticed that floating on the felled trunk of a tree was the grandson of Manu, the tribal chief. With a flash of light, he summoned the boy to him and brought him away to a quiet place. There he nursed him back to health and told them that if the god should ever learn of his existence, his soul would be in jeopardy. He taught him many things, including ways to remain hidden from spies of the divine. When he was satisfied the boy was ready, he struck him down dead with his light, and hoped that he would never hear from him again after reincarnation, for his own sake. Gil stopped talking. He felt somehow far away and alone. This was unforgivably awful form, he decided. He was interrupted, however, by Karina moving her hands just over the surface of his skin. Your aura, she breathed, her voice shaking with astonishment. I've never seen anything so... So old, so dark. I can't believe it. Her voice started to crack as a realization hit her. The story was about you. You're the boy that was rescued. Gil fought the tears pulling in the corners of his eyes as he tried not to remember his grandfather's face. He stood up gripping Karina's hand and brought her over to the railings. They stood, looking down over the monstrous engine. She settled in the corner, and he pressed in and embraced her, laying his lips on hers. I'll remember this forever, he breathed. That's amazing, she declared in awe and wonder. No, he said firmly. It's not. But why? Because you won't remember. You'll die and be reborn a whole new person. Refreshed, young, renewed. I'll die and be the same as I ever was. Alone. I... uh, Wow. When you put it like that... He kissed her again and they embraced in somber passion for a while. Every single day, he whispered as he kissed around her neck. I think of death. I think of it like a child thinks of his Christmas presents on Christmas Eve. I just imagine being a whole new person 
alive and light, but I just feel all the heavier. Every death and rebirth, I'm alive, but somehow I'm dying inside. Eternal life, he kissed her on the mouth, is a true death. How do you cope? I cope by doing good. Living this long has shown me what humanity really needs, and I can give it to them. And one day, I hope to give it to everyone. They embraced passionately. That's wild, she declared in a break in the kissing. What is the thing you want to give to the world? He kissed her harder, their bodies intertwined like two snakes, their persons melding into one. Death, he said. At that moment, Karina could no longer see him, only feel him. His aura had become so dark as to render his flesh beyond view. She felt the darkness inside her, on her mouth and then around her neck. Gills squeezed and the air stopped. Karina's hands began to frantically batter on his back as he pressed his fingers into the center of her throat. You're the most amazing woman I've ever met. I'm certain I'm in love with you, so I'm going to give you the most valuable gift in the world. One lover to another, he said with a fanatical passion. He squeezed harder. Karina's eyes began to pop, and not a sound was able to leave her chest. He pressed himself closer and tighter, determined to feel every last aspect of her presence before the final moment. Then he felt her grow still and relax. There was a timeless stillness in that embrace, his lips still on hers. He waited for it. The anticipation almost seemed too much to bear. He was so tense that he noticed the taste of iron in his mouth. He had inadvertently bitten her lip as he awaited the climax, and so a trickle of her blood had ran into his mouth. Come on, he screamed inside his head. He was on much better form than he thought, he decided. Then, like the grinding of the ship's gears, the sensation overcame him. The feeling of a soul leaving the body through him. It was a feeling of total release. Karina was free now, free of the prison of the flesh, and for just a fleeting moment, he could feel that freedom. What a rush! Truly the greatest pleasure of an eternal life was to enjoy those moments of exquisite death. But as normal, the soul did not linger long after death. It was gone as quickly as it appeared, and then it was just him intertwined with a corpse. The ecstasy imploded into envy and hatred. Why did she get to be free when he didn't? Why was he cursed as he was? He didn't deserve it. 
consumed by bitterness. He shoved the corpse over the railings and watched it fall into the violent recesses of the machine's teeth. He turned away and said to himself, What a time to be alive.